Good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave, and I'm part of the congregation and the leadership team here at the church. So this morning, I got asked to speak about anger, um, which is an interesting emotion to have to talk about, isn't it? Um, I wanted to start, though, by telling you this story. Um, there was a cave woman, um, and the cave woman lived in her cave with her cave husband and her cave family, um, and she lived in her cave, and she understood, she began to understand that, that she was dependent on the plants that grew outside the cave. She and her family were dependent on this plant that grew outside her cave and made food, fr fruit and veg for her family. And increasingly she became aware that she and her family to sustain themselves were dependent on these plants, but the plant seemed to be dependent on other forces. It seemed to be dependent on the ball of fire that went through the sky. It started in the morning on the left-hand side of her cave as she looked out and in the evening set on the right-hand side of her cave. And there seemed to be some link, some dependency between this ball of fire in the sky and whether the plant was able to grow. She also became aware that the plant was also dependent on water that fell from the sky. Sometimes it's really easy to guess when it was going to rain, when that water was going to appear. Sometimes it just seemed to appear from nowhere. If there was too much water, the plant would be washed away. If there was too little water, the plant would wither and die. She became aware that this plant was dependent on external forces, forces that the plant couldn't control, she couldn't control, which enabled the plant to grow. And so in some weird way, her family were dependent on these external forces, on the sun as it went from left to right and the rain as it poured. And her husband, the, the caveman, um, he went out hunting with his friends um, and they would go out hunting and sometimes they would go out and a couple of hours later they'd be back with the fresh kill that they were going to eat that evening. Um, and some days they would go out and they'd be gone for days on end. They'd have to trek up the mountain and through the valley and across through the woods and to the other side of the river. And sometimes they would come back with things to eat and sometimes they'd come back completely empty-handed. And the men would sit round and talk about the hunt. And they would talk about how some days it was really easy and they just seemed to find the wildlife and were able to catch things to eat. And other times it was much more difficult and they couldn't work out where to get food from. And they talked about it in almost a spiritual way. They talked about the spirit of the hunt. There just seemed to be some things, some forces that were beyond their control which determined whether they caught food or whether they didn't catch food. And the woman would listen to this story. The, woman, the cave woman would listen to the stories of the men. And they seemed to have a similar experience to her, that they were all dependent on forces beyond them. She was dependent on the sun and the water and the rain and her husband and the, the cavemen that went out on the hunt were dependent on whether there was wildlife available. And the cave woman um, became pregnant and had several children. And she realized there was this things would grow outside the cave, but also that she was able to create new life and her husband. And she had several children. Some of them were born and took that primal first breath where they breathed in and breathed out and were able to sustain life. Sadly, some of her children were born and weren't able to take that first primal breath. And she and her husband again realized that they were dependent on forces beyond them to sustain life. The cave family realized that there were these forces that they were not in control of, that they were dependent on to sustain themselves. And that story 
translated through humanity over tens, hundreds, thousands of years, where humanity realized that it was dependent on these forces, that it realized it was dependent on things that we couldn't control as human beings. And humanity started to say, well, we've got to keep these forces on side. If it doesn't rain, what's going to happen to us? Perhaps the force of rain has spent all its water over there and it's not going to rain here and the plants won't grow and we won't be able to eat and we won't be able to sustain ourselves. If there's too much sun and it scorches the earth, all the plants will die, the animals will die. It will set things on fire. And humanity became increasingly aware that they needed to keep these forces on side. And humanity started to name the forces. It started to talk about them as gods. There was the god of the sun and the god of the rain and the god of fertility and the god of the hunt and the god of love and, and started to name these forces and started to realize that in order to sustain life, they needed to keep these gods on side. And this happened right around the world in different tribes, different ethnicities, different geography, that human beings became to realize that they needed to keep the gods on side. And sometimes it felt like the gods were angry. Sometimes it felt like they'd done things to make the gods pour out punishment and they were fearful of the gods. And so human beings decided to start sacrificing things to the gods. So in the good years, when the gods seemed to be looking down on them pleased, human beings sacrificed some of their harvest and said, we've grown crops and we're going to sacrifice and give it back to the gods. But in the bad years, when it seemed that the gods were displeased with them, when the gods were angry and the crops wouldn't grow or the rain didn't come, human beings sacrificed to the gods to say, we've obviously done something to displease you. We've obviously done the wrong thing. We obviously haven't carried out the right rituals. And so they sacrificed. And they continued to sacrifice and no sacrifice was ever good enough. So in the good years, they sacrificed loads because they wanted to say to the gods, we're not taking this for granted. But in the bad years... They sacrificed loads because they were saying to the gods, we've obviously done the wrong thing. Help us. Let's sacrifice more and more. And they built altars. And they sacrificed to the gods on altars. And the sacrifices became ever more complicated. So it went from sacrificing my crops to sacrificing my best animals to sometimes sacrificing children to sometimes letting their blood to the gods. The sacrifices became ever more complicated. And humanity learned in its bones that there was this deep anxiousness between humanity and the gods, that there was this deep fear of the gods, this deep worry that if they displeased the gods, the gods would be angry. And it sort of seeped into the bones of humanity over thousands and thousands of years that human beings, first of all, needed to be careful of the gods needed to be careful that they didn't anger the gods, that they didn't do the wrong rituals, that they didn't displease the gods. And secondly, that human beings didn't really know where they were with the gods. They didn't know what they needed to do to keep the gods on their side. The gods could be angry and fearful and furious towards them if they did it wrong. And I tell you that story, this like broad stretch of from the dawn of time to... Um, people thinking about naming the gods and sacrificing to the gods because the Bible was written into culture. So it didn't just appear out of a vacuum. When the stories, the ancient stories in the Old Testament were written down, they were written in a culture, a culture that had understood the gods and the relationship between humanity and the gods in particular ways over the course of many, many millennia. And the reason I tell you any of it really is because when I was preparing for this um, 
talk, I sort of Googled the Bible and anger. You Google the Bible and anger, and particularly the Old Testament, it says there are nearly 700 recordings of God being angry, furious, rageful towards humanity. And if you're going to do about a, talk, <laughs> a talk about anger in a church, you better have a look at what the Bible says. And on the face of it, it looks quite angry at times. God looks pretty angry at times. But the first thing I'm going to say is that I think some of the anger that we read in the Old Testament is actually sometimes the misunderstanding of God. That's not to write it off and say it's not important, but I think it's sometimes the misunderstanding of God because of that history I just explained to you of how humanity had seen that they need to be careful of the gods. I think in the Old Testament there's a wonderful understanding of God. As people, humanity starts to realize the one God and the one God is on their side and the one God is loving and the one God wants to bless all of humanity. But I think there's wonderful misunderstanding too in the Old Testament. Let me give you two examples. Um, There's an example we talked about before in Numbers 15. It's a story of Moses. Um, And Moses is out in the desert with the Israelites and one of the Israelites goes off on the Sabbath to collect wood. Um, and he goes to collect, you know, kindling to start a fire because he's cold and his family are cold. Um, he goes to collect this stuff on the Sabbath. He's broken the rules. He's done work on the Sabbath. And so he gets brought before Aaron and Moses and people say, what should we do with this guy? What should we do? He's broken the rules. And so God speaks, and it's directly God speaks in the Bible. If you read the verses in Numbers 15, it said, God said, you must kill this man. In fact, you shouldn't just kill him. You should take him outside and you should stone him to death. The whole community should get together and stone this man to death. Now, that's a fascinating story, and that's what happened. Moses took this guy outside, and they all stoned him to death. That's in the words of God. God said, you must kill this man. Now, we've just sung a song that says, you are love and love alone. How do you square what we just sang with that story that seems violently angry? So it's my take on this story and it's my take, so you can disagree with this, but that, that is some misunderstanding of God. Moses understood loads of new, liberating, loving stuff about God, but he also had some misunderstanding about God. The gods were sometimes angry, and that's some of the culture that people, you know, these Bronze Age, Iron Age people understood about the way that humanity and God operated together, that somehow, sometimes God could be angry. And I think that's some of Moses' misunderstanding of God. Now, that's not to write the story off. That's a wonderful lesson for us to learn in the Bible, isn't it? When do we misunderstand God in our culture and think we've heard from God, but actually are really hearing about our presuppositions and the things we already think? What a great story to learn from. That isn't to write it off. Let me tell you another one. Um, There's a story written on something called the Mesha Steel. The Mesha Steel is um, a piece of stone that was found in Jordan in the 1800s. And you might have read in the Old Testament there was this tribe called the Moabites. And the Mesha Steel is a recording of the Moabites. So this is not from the Bible. It's not from our sort of canon of scripture. This is the Moabite recording of something that happened. And it's a war between the Moabites and the Israelites. And the king is called King Mesha of the Moabites. And their god, or one of their gods, I guess, is called um, Chemosh. And so on this steel that was found in the 1800s, it records a war that the Moabites had with the Israelites. And it says this, And Chemosh, the god, said to me, said to Mesha, the king, Go and take Nebo against Israel, 
And so, Mesha, I went in the night and I fought against Israel from the break of day till noon. And I took Israel and I killed all 7,000 men, boys, women, girls and maidservants, for I had devoted them to destruction for God. God says to the Moabites, go and kill the Israelis, the Israelites. Um, and so the Moabites go off and kill 7,000 people. Now, interestingly, that story is recorded from the other perspective in the Bible, in two kings, so from the Israelite perspective. And there's a story in two kings that talks about the Israelites going off to kill the Moabites. And in that story, they disappear off the three Israelite kings to, to, to wage war with the Moabites, and they get into the desert and they run out of water and so they get a prophet to come and talk to them and they say, surely you haven't sent us off God just to die in the desert. And so the prophet comes and says to them, no, that's not what's happened. God says he's going to keep you safe. In fact, God says you should go and destroy the Moabites. And so the Israelites set off and in their story it says the Israelites destroyed the Moabites and killed men, women, children because God had told them to. Now, isn't that interesting? There are two stories. First of all, it's interesting that there are two different recordings of the same event. But secondly, I think it's fascinating that both stories took God on their side. God was the justifier of their war. Now, isn't that interesting that perhaps some of the violence we read in the Old Testament is not actually God on their side, but it's people just assuming that's the way the gods worked. That's what you did. When you went to war, you made sure God was on your side. And so you wrote a story about God being on your side to justify violence and so I don't want to write that off again that's a really important story when do we go to war in our society and say God is on our side you know we haven't got very far from that story really have we to some of the wars that our societies fight today so I, I think there's extraordinary liberation and grace and goodness recorded in the Old Testament but I think there's always a good way to to read it to look for the things that are different rather than the things that are the same so um, I remember reading some of the law of Moses compared to some of the law of the Babylonians, um, something called Hammurabi's Code. And there was so much similarity between the two things. There were loads of sentences that almost read word for word the same. But the fantastic bit was not that really, because that seemed to me to just be the way that peoples understood things. The fantastic bit was the new stuff. And the new stuff in Moses' law was liberating. It talked about slaves not being any different there were no second-class citizens in Moses' law, as opposed to the Babylonian code that did have a really sort of hierarchical understanding of people. When we're reading the Old Testament, I think rather than us looking at what's the same as culture and saying, well, therefore God must be angry, I think it's always better for us to look at what's different. How are, how are the people of the Old Testament understanding this new, liberating, gracious God in a better and freer way? Look for what's different. If you take the story of Abraham right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, I think Abraham, you know, we're, again, we're talking about ancient people here. Abraham's father was, um, you know, an uh, idol. He created idols to many, many gods. And Abraham had this understanding for the first time that actually there was one God. And this one God was going to bless the whole world. He had this fantastic new understanding of who God was and how God operated. But Abraham immediately slipped back into, and this is the way the gods work. They need sacrifice. And I'm going to sacrifice my son, Isaac. And I'm going to take him off to sacrifice him. And I think, again, that was some of Abraham's misunderstanding of God because of the way the gods 
operated. Abraham gets to the point where he's about to sacrifice his son and has this next revelation, which is, this isn't what God wants. This isn't what God wants. He doesn't want this type of sacrifice. And so in that story, there's this mixture of wonderful new understanding, but I think some misunderstanding, which has seeped in from culture around. And we could read that story and say, well, God is this angry God that seems to like playing games with child sacrifice. Or we could read that story and say, look at the wonderful new liberating stuff that Abraham's learned and look at how interesting it is that he's still appropriating some stuff from the way he's understood the gods previously. The thing I really want to say about the Old Testament is, one, I think there's lots of anger written into it and I think we should be careful about the way we read it. Um, I think there's a mixture, as I've said, of understanding and misunderstanding. But I think there definitely is a sense in the Old Testament where there's this anguish recorded. There's the anguish of God when he sees that things are not going right. And sometimes I think when we see the word anger, we can almost replace it with the word anguish, and it makes more sense. Moses comes down the mountain after he's recorded laws on tablets, and he gets back down the mountain, and the Israelites are... Um, carving idols to different people. They've created cows out of gold and they, they, they've gone off the tracks. And you can just feel in that story that Moses is anguished about this. He, this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. And he breaks the tablets and there's this sense that it's just not the way it's supposed to be. When you're reading the prophets, um, you can hear in their voices like this anguish about their crying out that the world should be different, that this isn't the way God intended it. You can sometimes read sentences in the Old Testament where it says, God's anger burnt against, burned against them. And if you replace it with the word anguish, to me it makes more sense. God's anguish burnt against, he didn't want it to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. He wants humanity to learn the lessons quicker and understand God better. And so the reason I tell you any of that, I think, is because I think we've got to come to an understanding of whether we think God is angry, has the possibility of being angry, whether that sort of furious rage is a character trait of God, because it shapes how we view ourselves, but it also shapes the way we behave, I think. And to me, the starkest example I've seen of that, um, I think, in recent years is when Steve wrote his articles about LGBT inclusion a few years ago. And he would get letters in the post that I, I would read some of them, and I've never read such angry letters they were written in angry tones because of this sort of righteousness that, you know, this wasn't the way people understood things. But they were written in really angry tones, and to me it was partially because, you know, they believed he's being an angry God that was prepared to talk like that, and therefore it translated into behavior. Secondly, I would say that in all of these stories there's this real sense of anguish as opposed to rageful anger that I think we'd be, do well to take note of. So we like hurtle through the Bible and, and get to Jesus in the New Testament. So, and we read that story about the temple just a second ago. What's Jesus' take on anger? Well, I think Jesus' take on anger, he gives loads of really helpful advice, and we're going to look at some of it in a minute, on how to manage anger. Um, he gives advice and he demonstrates the way to handle yourself and how to handle the emotion of anger. In fact, in um, Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, I'll just read you a few bits of this. Here's some advice. It's just, just a few bits. He says, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be sub subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a, um, a contemptuous word, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is an- answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there's a member, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. Don't bother with the ritual. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, this bit about loving your enemies, a famous bit, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. Jesus gives loads of advice about don't um, be revengeful. Um, If you've got a problem, go and talk to somebody about it. Don't do the ritualistic stuff. Um, actually solve it. Do it quickly. Don't let it um, simmer for a long time. I think in the New Testament there are also loads of stories of Jesus displaying the same anguish that we find in the Old Testament. And so we read the story of the temple. Now that's a fantastic story, isn't it? You could read that and say um, it looks like the God of the Old Testament is back and God's starting to be um, violent and vengeful again. He's throwing tables over and chasing people out of the temple and whipping people. And I think we've perhaps misread that story slightly too. I think Jesus did have this deep anguish about people being ripped off. The money sellers in the temple were um, exchanging money so that you could buy your sacrifices when you went into the temple. And I do think he was probably anguished about this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But I think the bigger thing that he was probably anguished about is the system itself. The temple was like a physical representation of the system. The temple was this almost sort of filtration system. If you were a child or a disabled person, you're not coming in. Next layer in, if you're a Gentile or a Jew, you can get into the outer courts. After that, only if you're a Jew, a man or a woman. After that, only if you're a Jewish man. After that, only if you're a Jewish man and you're a priest. After that, the Holy of Holies, and you can go and see God, but only one day a year, and only if you're the high priest. And I think Jesus was anguished about that. I think he was saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. God has not got this filtration system where it's only for some people and only on one day a year. Everyone's included. And so I think the story in the the New Testament there where we read about the temple is actually Jesus expressing his anguish. And how do you go about expressing that sort of anguish in Jesus' day? Do you write, you know, a strongly worded Facebook post or a blog or do a podcast? No, of course you don't. I think there's this piece of almost public theatre that Jesus is involving himself in where he gets up and says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I've come to tell you that the world is different. I've come to tell you that it isn't like this. And I think the story we're reading there is not a story of anger over spilling into violence. I think it's a story of anguish and a story of public theatre where Jesus is saying, this isn't how it's supposed to be. There's another story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. And again, it's quite a famous one. It's Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and it says this. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? 
but they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he restored it. Again, in that story, you can hear this deep anguish, where you can almost hear Jesus saying, come on, what's the best thing to do? Heal somebody or not heal somebody? Are we going to stick to the rules or are we going to do the loving, gracious, compassionate thing? You can heal this deep anguish, I think, in that story. In all of these stories, though, I think, and this is important, Jesus' anguish is never out of control. It's never outside the parameters of wanting to love other people. And most importantly, it's not self-centered. Both of those stories about Jesus saying, for other people, I want the world to be different. And so to get a little bit more practical, what about anger for us? I, I think there's a difference between anger and anguish. Um, I think when I reflect on some of my anger, um, it actually is, says more about me than it does the situation that I'm in. It could say things about feeling rejected or feeling fearful or feeling inadequate or feeling powerless or feeling I've been treated unfairly or feeling my boundaries have been violated. There's loads on the internet that talks about anger almost being a mask or a projection of the way that we feel and we project it onto other people and actually it says more about us than it does about the situation we're in. When I look back at the story of Jesus in the temple, do I think he was responding like that because he felt rejected or fearful or inadequate or powerless or unfairly treated or because his boundaries were violated? No, I don't. I think Jesus was responding because of this deep sense of anguish, not because of um, a self-centered anger, if you like. Anguish is different. Anguish is about broken-heartedness. Anguish is about other-centeredness. So anger is not a bad emotion. In fact, it's a completely natural emotion that we all have, I suspect, all the time, isn't it? So the question is not how we can sort of zero it out of our life. The question is what we do with it when it comes. Um, just this week in Oasis, there have been loads of stories. I've been involved in loads of conversations just this week where people are falling out and getting angry with each other. And I guess I sometimes get involved in that myself. Um, but you can tell just to look at other people's stories. It's really transparent, isn't it? I was in one conversation this week where you can just see that the anger is more about what's going on in their life and what's going on in their life than it is about the actual conflict. And I'm sure that's true of me sometimes too. Um, interestingly, there's lots of research that says that anger makes us over-optimistic. Um, anger's this like primal force, isn't it? And I guess originally it was to help us get out of dangerous situations. So if you're about to be attacked by a bear or a um, lion or something, um, anger pumps you full of adrenaline and makes you optimistic. You want to feel pretty optimistic in the, that situation that your actions are going to help you get out of the situation you're in. Anger makes us feel over-optimistic. And it means that sometimes when we're angry, we think that our actions are going to have a different result to the one they actually do. We're over-optimistic about what our actions are going to achieve. And it sometimes means when we're angry, we do things that in the cold light of day, we wouldn't have done them because we'd have known that actually they wouldn't have had the right result. Secondly, I think there's loads of anger that goes on which you, we don't recognize the fact that actually it's about us and not about the situation. Um, I think that's a hard thing to do, but something we should try to do. Um, the nine habits, all of this series is a sort of anti-nine habits. It's like, um, let's not be angry, let's be self-controlled. It's one of our nine habits. Um, I don't think the nine habits are about us getting to this sort of zen-like state where, you know, we live on this plateau and nothing ever goes wrong. I think the nine habits need to be taken as a package 
And the nine habits reflect the fact that Steve just said before I started talking that we get stuff wrong. We're going to be angry and we're going to react in the wrong way, which is why the nine habits are coupled with forgiveness. We've got to take them as a package. In fact, I think sort of zeroing out our lives to the point where we're in complete self-control actually loses some of the brilliance of life and humanity, doesn't it? Where there are challenges and there are great things, there's joy and there's pain, and actually that's part of the package of being alive, isn't it? So what does Jesus' model say to us about anger? I think Jesus' model says loads of different things, but here are seven things that I wrote down. Firstly, I think Jesus' model says, don't let your anger get out of control. Address it, and address it lovingly. I think Jesus' model says, don't seek revenge. Love your enemies, don't persecute them. Pray for them, don't persecute them. I think Jesus' model says, sort yourself out before you be angry with others. There's that story which we haven't read about, you know, taking the plank out of your own eye before you go after being angry with other people. I think Jesus' model takes talks to us about knowing when to walk away. Loads of the stories with the Pharisees end with, and Jesus walked off. Or end with, and Jesus went off to sit on a mountainside. Or end with, and Jesus finished the conversation. Lots of the stories end with, and Jesus knew when to walk away. When to buy time. When to distract yourself. I think there's that great story, isn't there, of Jesus and the the um, adulterous woman that everyone's having a go at. And Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and writing something in the sand and The Bible doesn't tell us what he's writing in the sand. And I almost wonder whether that's Jesus buying some time, giving himself a moment to pause so he doesn't respond in the wrong way, so that he doesn't react, so that he doesn't do the angry thing. He's almost taking some time out of the conversation just to give himself some breathing space. Knowing when to take time out, when to buy yourself some time. I think Jesus talks continually about learning to forgive and forgiving often. And seventh point is, I think, Jesus constantly talks about not getting into head-on battles. So the Pharisees often ask him questions, and Jesus is this wonderful sidestepper sometimes, isn't he? Rather than respond angrily to the question, he actually asks a different question, or he pivots to a different topic, or he actually throws it back and asks the question of the people that are talking to him. Don't let your anger get out of control. Don't seek revenge. Sort yourself before being angry with others. Know when to walk away and distract yourself with something else. Know when to take time out. Forgive people and don't always go into head-on battles. So I think the Bible does two things. I think one, and Jesus does this too, one, it gives us loads of advice about handling an emotion which we all feel all of the time. Um, And I think it's fantastic advice and there's probably more than that. But I think the other thing that it does is, and this is the more important thing in one sense, I think the Bible calls us to be more anguished about stuff than we are. I think the self-centeredness of anger, actually the more self-centered I am, probably the more angry I'm going to be about the bits in myself that I find and I don't like. Whereas the more anguished I am about the things in the world that aren't right, the more I'm crying out and saying, the world shouldn't be like this, what can I do to lovingly, graciously change it? the more I'm probably going to be putting into practice what Jesus does in the Bible. So I think the Bible gives us advice, but it's calling us to be more anguished. The God of the Old Testament was anguished. He wanted the world to be different. Jesus was anguished. He wanted the temple system to be different. He wanted people to live a different, more full life. So we're going to just stop there at the end and and just pause. And Flick's going to 
come and play a little bit of music. And I just wanted to leave a bit of space at the end for us to do two things, and you can choose what you do, really. You might be sitting there thinking, I feel really angry at the moment, or I know somebody's angry at me. And you might want to pray about, think about, what could you do differently? How could you stop that anger getting out of control? How could you take some time away, walk away from a situation? How could you know how to forgive? How could you avoid a head-on battle? You might want to pray about a situation you're in where you feel angry or someone is angry with you. Or, on the other hand, you might want to pray about what are the things that you can see in your life, in your community, in our country, globally, that you should feel more anguished about than you do? What should you feel more anguished about? And how can you graciously respond to feeling more anguished about those issues? So I'm going to leave you just uh, three or four or five minutes just to, to pray. Pray about either whether you feel angry and what you could do about that or what you should feel anguished about. <laughs>